Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. You can open up to Luke chapter 19. If, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 19. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we'll, we'll get one in your hand. Uh, we want you to follow, us, follow along in our story this morning in the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus, Luke chapter 19. And stand with me, and we're going to read this account this morning. Draw your attention to verse 28. That's where we'll start. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, are, when, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning and this glorious account that was prophesied over and over again about the coming king who would come to make peace on our behalf. And we just give you glory and honor this morning, Lord. We ask you to help us to take this, this common, common account and make it applicable in our lives this morning, Lord. We, we, can, we can enter into this time of reading this text, and we're so familiar with it that it doesn't impact us. But may that not be the case this morning. We just open up our hearts, Lord. Speak, speak life into us, Lord. Give us a fresh word. Change our lives this morning, Lord. We, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever lost your way before? Like, you know, you think you know where you're going, but, you know, somewhere along the way, you, you come to the realization that, wait a second, I, I have no idea where I am. 
I have no idea how to get to where I'm going. Now, we know that this only happens to women, right? Because they're the only ones humble enough to realize that they're lost, right? I mean, guys, guys will not do that. In fact, I, I mean, <laughs> we just celebrated, we just had this whole week long thing where, where they have, you know, mules parading through town and all this. I think we could trade out men for mules and there would be no difference. Like people would just be doing this because we're so stubborn. That is the truth. Man, I'll tell you what. I, there's, there, there are times in my life where not only do I not know where I'm going or how to get to where I want to go, but sometimes I'm walking through my house on mission to do something. And before I know it, I'm stopped going, what was I doing? Anybody else with me on that? Listen, I know, it's, it's a, as you get older, your brain starts to not function the way that it should, and, and you, you, can, you can start to slip. Distraction? Probably. Probably a little bit distracted, but, but nonetheless, you know, it can happen to us. Now, that can happen in worship. That can happen as we routinely come into a place like this and we come to, you know, sing songs. It can happen uh, where, where people will slip into a place of singing with their lips but not praising with their hearts. We're just going through the motions. We're just singing words with no real heart connection. Singing is not praising, and praising is not singing. Those are two entirely different things. It comes down to the heart condition. It comes down to where your heart is at. You know, are you centered on Jesus? When you come in here, are you coming to get or are you coming to give? You know, when you, when you live your life out there, are you living to get or are you living to give? It's all a matter of the heart. One way is a, you know, self-focused way. The other way is a selfless focus. And I would think that, you know, as we read the scriptures and we see over and over again the example of Jesus, particularly, you know, in, in the New Testament as we have the Gospels and we see the way that he lived his life, that he lived in that mode of praising. He lived in that mode of giving, of selflessness, and he's called us to that same place. Listen, we can sing with no heart connection. After all, they're just words. But we cannot praise God if our heart is not in it. Singing is religious activity. Praising is relational activity. God wants more than a song. Amen? He wants more than just words. He wants a life. He wants a heart. He deserves that. He deserves our praise and our adoration and our wholehearted worship. And when he has it, then we are praising him. Then and only then are we praising him. I, I, my, the title of my message this morning is The Results of Real Praise. And I want to consider the difference between singing and praising as we consider the triumphal entry of Jesus. When God's people are genuine, real praising people, they have real attributes that accompany them. I'm going to give you my outline here, so if you want to take notes, you can write this down. We're going to look at three things from these verses that we just read that, of attributes that are produced from real praise. 
Verses 28 through 34, we find real praise results in real obedience. Real praise results in real obedience. Verses 35 through 40, we find real praise results in real offering. Real praise results in real offering. Then finally, in verses 41 through 44, real praise results in real peace. First, let's consider real praise results in real obedience. Draw your attention to verse 28 where we read again, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, let me give you a little bit of backdrop here so, you, so we can pick it up because we're picking it up midstream here. And, uh, you know, Jesus, this is his last week of life on earth. And the majority of every gospel account if you look at the, you know, the gospel of John, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of Matthew, you look at those accounts, the majority of those accounts are primarily of the last week of Jesus' life. Like, like half of John is the last week of his life. And in fact, the end of John says if they were to record all the things that Jesus said and did, there wouldn't be enough books to contain them. So really, when you look at the gospel accounts, you're looking at a very, very small snippet of Jesus' life, and particularly you, with, with very, very, very much a lot of focus on the last week of his life, like what he was doing in, the la- in Passion Week, starting here in the triumphal entry on Sunday 2,000 years ago to the point in which Good Friday comes where he gives his life up into the resurrection of Jesus. And then we go on to the book of Acts where it tells us in chapter 1 about the ascension of Jesus. So we, we, we see these things and, and we read about them, but, but what's going on right now in this moment is Jesus is entering that, that, that last week of his life. And uh, wh- where he was, was he, he was coming to that place from, he was coming from Jericho, where he had just met with Zacchaeus. You know the story, Zac- Zacchaeus, little man, was he, you know, he, he re- climbed up in a sycamore tree just so he could see, you know, Zacchaeus. So he just had hung out with Zacchaeus. He had just hung out in his house. He had healed a couple blind guys, and he had done some miraculous work. And, um, you know, Jesus at this point in time was, he was, he had a, he was notorious. People knew him because he did so many miracles. And in Jericho, there was no doubt a crowd forming because this, at this point in time, people were migrating to Jerusalem because it was for the Passover feast that they were preparing to, to uh, celebrate. And so Jesus is moving. He's preparing to go up to Jerusalem. Now, uh, this, this is, if you notice the last uh, verse that we read there in our account, in verse 40, it said that, um, verse 44 actually, it said that um, Jesus was speaking over Jerusalem, over the holy city. And he was speaking to the people in Jerusalem, and he said, you know, that, that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. Right? And we know that happened in 70 AD. But, but here's the thing. Here's what he said. Had they known the time of the visitation, had they known the time of the visitation that was before them, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But he understands the hardness of the heart of man. And he says they don't understand the, the, the time. What is the time? It's talking about a specific day that was ordained by God, that was given in all kinds of prophetical words throughout the Old Testament, that Jesus was going to come to the great city of Jerusalem and that he was going to 
to make himself king. Now, it was a messianic claim, that prophecy. And Jesus is about to present himself to the people of Israel as their Messiah. You remember, up to this point, Jesus has been sort of quiet about who he is. In fact, he's healed people, and he said, hey, keep that, keep that on the down low. I didn't say that, but, you know, he said, hey, yo, keep it on the down low. You know, he, he told them to keep it quiet. Why? Do you, do you know the continual words that he keeps saying? Because my time is not yet. Because my time is not yet. And, in fact, there was a period of time somewhere right around this time that Jesus stayed away from Jerusalem. Why? Because it was not his time. They were trying to kill him. They would have killed him the moment they got their hands on him, the, the religious leaders. But he avoided Jerusalem for that reason until now, until this moment. And so he's in Jericho. He's getting ready to move up. Now, what you need to understand is that any time Jesus, uh, you know, was when, when a crowd assembled with Jesus, there were three kinds of people in the crowd. There were followers, there were fans, and there were fault finders. The followers were people that were full of real praise. They were people that were followers of Jesus. Now, what you need to understand is that does not mean that they had their theology 100% correct, right? And you need to understand that because there are people filled with real praise that are genuine believers in Jesus Christ that don't have their theology 100%. Maybe you're one. Maybe I'm one. Maybe the person that goes to another church that we think is not a believer is one, right? Because their theology doesn't line up with our theology. So just be careful with that. Because even the disciples of Jesus, their theology wasn't 100%. But they were praisers. They were followers of Jesus. Jesus had captured their heart, right? So there are followers in the crowd. Then there are fans. And we would say fair-weathered, right? I mean, they're there. They're excited. But they're not following Jesus. They're singers, and they're singers. They're singing words without a heart connection, right? These kind of people are there for what they can get. I would venture to say that these are the very first prosperity doctrine people that are following what, oh, Jesus is doing healings. Let's go there and, and let's name it and claim it there, you know, kind of thing. And, and uh, they, were rich, they were there to get from Jesus, but they were not there because they wanted to follow him. So there are many people in our world today like that. Right, but when Jesus began to speak, there were always fans. People just followed him around uh, because he was who he was and he did what he did and they wanted to get something out of him. And then there was the other people, the fault finders. These are the religious people. These are the, the staunch Jews who want Jesus dead. They, 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 everything that Jesus does, they want to rebuke. Every, every work that he does, they want to say that it's at the power of Satan, right? They, they want to defame Jesus in some way. They're bringing, they're, they're trying to bring his name down. And those people are always in the crowd when Jesus is present. They're always there. So it shouldn't surprise you when people start to naysay you and start to find fault in what you're doing, right? They did it to Jesus. Don't you think they're going to do it to you? So there were these, these three kinds of people that are in this crowd. And, and they're in this account today, and we see them very clearly. There were people who were praising him, and there were people that were simply singing. And then there were people 
who were trying to find fault with him. They had lost their way, many of them, as the nation of Israel. They had lost their way. These people, as Jesus indicated in verse 44, should have known the time of the visitation that was before them. They should have known this moment that was ordained by God when Jesus would, would walk down into the city of Jerusalem as prophesied 500 years beforehand, by the way. There's our Messiah, and yet they did not. They rejected him. They fully rejected Jesus. It was simply a religious culture. Sound familiar? Very much like the culture we live in. I would venture to say that you're not going to find many people around here who say they're not Christians. <laughs> you know, your, your neighbors, your, 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 the people you encounter in the stores. And, and you know, it's actually I had a friend in, where we were from in Sarasota, Florida. When we first moved up in 2007, they said, I heard everybody's a Christian up there. Oh, <laughs> really? Everybody's a Christian in Middle Tennessee? Wow. Not true. But, but many people think they are, and many people present themselves as Christians. They're, 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 we live in a religious culture very much like this. So what I'm saying is there's a lot of singers. The question is, is there a lot of praisers? Is there true, genuine belief? Or are we fair-weather fans or perhaps just religious people? The three ty people types still exist today in this culture. And so this is a very relevant message. Now, how do we know who we are? How do we know which one we are? Jesus said, he said to the fans and to the religious people, to the, to the um, fault finders, in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, he said, he said to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What Jesus was telling these people is that one of the identifiers that you can look at in your own life or you can look at in, in others' lives, which is, is really tricky. I, I don't recommend trying to determine if somebody's saved or not. That's not really our job. But, but here's what we can know, is that those who abide in his word are his true disciples. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying you want an indicator of where you are spiritually? You want to understand? You want a litmus test? Well, do you, do you obey me? Do you obey my word? Are you following me? That's really the question. And if you are, listen, there is fruit. What is the fruit according to these verses? Freedom. The fruit is freedom. So if we're following Jesus, if we're obeying him, if we're abiding, that literally means like we're living in his word. We're living in it. We're applying it into our lives. If we're living in it, then we're going to find freedom. Real relational obedience is a sign of real praise. You won't do it perfectly, but you will be obedient. There will be that fruit in your life. Listen, even when it doesn't make sense. Look at verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, which is called all of it, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied and on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here 
If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found just as, it, as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. How can you tell if you're a sold-out Christian? By your willingness to do whatever he asks you to do. By your willingness to, to do whatever it is that he's asking you to do. Now, I have done some extremely bizarre stuff in my AD days. That's after death, you know, when I was born again. I died, Christ came in me, I was born again. You know, there's the BC days and then there's the AD days. So in the AD days, I've done some weird things. Uh, a, number one, that have taken me out of my comfort zone, and B, number two, that did not make sense to me. So I've done all kinds of weird things, and I think, like, Lord, why do you have me do these things? Why do you have me walk up to somebody I do not know and say, hey, the Lord wants you to know something? Or why do you have me, as I'm walking by somebody, say, hey, can I pray for you right now? You know, why do you have me do these things? And he says, oh, don't you remember? You died. You remember that you gave your life up to me, and I'm to be the one living through you. I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? And he's reaching people through us in sometimes bizarre ways. Listen, God is going to take you out of your comfort zone as a Christian, God is going to put you in positions that, well, you don't necessarily understand, and you're not going to feel too comfortable doing it. But we don't walk by our feelings. We walk by the Word of God, and we abide in Christ, right? And so what happens here is something bizarre. And, and, and understand, what they are about to do, if Jesus is wrong about it, they will die. This is capital punishment in this culture, to steal something, to take something that does not belong to you. I'm not going to say the Lord told them to steal it because he didn't. But they don't know that. Do they know what Jesus knows? Absolutely not. Jesus doesn't give them an explanation. Well, here's the thing. You know, God, God prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, 9 that I was going to come in on a donkey's colt and all this stuff, and he prepared that for you. You're going to go get it, and they already know what's happening and all of that kind of stuff. Did they know what was happening in that moment? Even the, the, the owner of that foal, of that coat, of that donkey, did they know? No, they didn't. How do we know? Because they asked them why they were untying it. Maybe they were disciples too. When he said, the Lord has need of it, they're like, oh. Listen, there's a, there's a principle in that. The Lord owns everything you have. There's not a single thing that you don't have that is not his. And there may be a time period where he says, I need that. Can you give that to me? The question is, will you do it? Does it have to make sense to you? Does it have to be comfortable for you? I promise you, God will put you in those positions continually where he will challenge you. He tells his disciples, you go, and you go do this thing. I mean, it would be like, 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 it would be like walking into... Uh, 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 you know, let, let's just say the Toyota across the street and just jumping in the car and starting it up and you're getting ready to pull off and they're saying, hey, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it and you just take off. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, don't do that. Don't do that. You go to jail. 
<laughs> this was a special, special situation. It was ordained by God. And what God needs in this moment is real obedience. He needs real obedience. In order for him to get real obedience, he has to have real praise from these people. He needs, they, they need to be real praisers. They, you know, these guys have already, these disciples, we don't know who they are, by the way, but we know that there's two of them. I love that Jesus doesn't send me by myself. Don't you? There's always somebody with you. And I enjoy that. And I know when I am uh, witnessing to people, if there's someone else there, it's just so much easier. And, you know, they, they contribute to the conversation, and it's just so, you know, like the Lord moves incredibly. I love the two-by-two thing. And, you know, not that he doesn't send us by ourselves at times, but he sent these two there. And he said, just do what I ask you to do. And they, they were obedient to it. Now, you might ask yourself, why a donkey? I mean, if Jesus was going to steal something or take something or use something to try the triumphal entry of Jesus and he's coming on a donkey, do you know how smooth of a ride that is? <laughs> it's not a smooth ride. They take short strides. They're very jerky, and they're, uh, you know, they're, they're very stubborn. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to come on a donkey. Why a donkey? Not only because it's the closest parallel to a man, but also, more importantly, <laughs> you took you for a second there. You're like, oh, what is it? Whoa, you guys are awake. So um, more importantly, though, is because it was prophesied. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 500 years before Jesus came. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay. Now, I debated on how far to go into this because this is incredible. But this prophecy doesn't just start here. Like it started in the Garden of Eden. And, it, and, and God continually just prophesied and prophesied and prophesied about Jesus coming. And he gets more specific and more specific and more specific throughout the entire Old Testament. If you read your Old Testament and you don't see Jesus, you don't read your Old Testament correctly. Why do we read the Old Testament? It's not because we're looking to the Old Covenant. It's because we're looking for Jesus Christ in it. Jesus is in every single page of the Bible, folks, from Genesis to Revelation, and God is revealing himself, and, and there's many times where you'll just blaze through, you know, I, I, read, I try and read through the Bible every once in a while, and, you know, I get into the Old Testament, and I'm just like, you know, and, and it's easy to just start reading and not really letting the Holy Spirit speak to you, and you'll miss a ton of prophetic statements that are made about Jesus. So you read it with the understanding of looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And, there, and he's all over the place. It's crazy. But, but in this particular case, this was very, very specific. And it was in a time period where God was telling the Jews, after the, you know, a, a, as they're rebuilding Jerusalem and all this kind of stuff, that, that they're going, their king is going to come. And they're not going to be oppressed for very long, but their king will show up. And here's the sign. He's going to be on a donkey. And why a donkey? Culturally, in this time frame, in, in ancient Israel, um, 
when a king would show up to a town and he was, he was showing up to, give, to bring peace upon the town, he would ride a donkey. Solomon rode a donkey into a town to, to, to bless the town, to bring peace to the town. But when they came to bring war, they would ride a horse. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 19, is not coming on a donkey in his second coming. He's coming on a horse, a war horse. He's not coming to bring peace at that point. He's coming to bring war. And it really won't even be a war. With his words, he will destroy the nations that are trying to stand up against him. But why a donkey? Because it's a sign. It's a prophetic sign that he's the king and that he's come to bring peace. That's the point of the donkey. His disciples, which are notorious, by the way, as are we, had an opportunity to really mess this up. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to get that donkey. I'm not going to do that. But they didn't because they were praising people who were obedient. That's the sign. Are you obedient to the Lord? Are you doing what he asks you to do? Even when, A, it takes you out of your comfort zone, and B, it doesn't make sense to you. Are you being obedient? True praising people are real obedient people. Secondly, real, praising, real, real praise results in real offering. Look at verse 35. So what happens? They brought the donkey to Jesus, and immediately they start to throw their cloaks on the coat. Now, by the way, I don't know if you noticed the coats on the floor. We don't have this every Sunday. And you're thinking, man, what, if you're a visitor here, you're like, well, what, what is wrong with these people? Right? Well, why are their jackets? Those are, we're going to put those on later. No, I'm just kidding. But um, those jackets are in honor of this. His disciples took off their cloaks, and they put them on the, on the donkey, and they laid them on the ground. His disciples gave real offering to him. The cloak in this culture was sometimes the most valuable thing that they owned. One of, sometimes the only possession that they had was a cloak. If you didn't have a cloak, you couldn't survive in this culture. Because in Israel, yes, it gets warm in the day, but it gets really cold at night. And the cloak was their blanket. It was their, their, their coat. It was all kinds of different things. It was their lifeline. And yet, they begin to lay their cloaks on the donkey that has never been sat on, by the way. And they say, Jesus, sit on our cloak. What is the meaning of that? To take your cloak off and lay it down like this is a sign of submission to him. I'm yours. Have you taken your cloak off? Have you laid your cloak on the floor that he might walk over it? That he is, you're declaring to him, I submit to you, Jesus. Real praise results in real offering. Now, there's a sizable crowd with Jesus at this point. Again, he's coming from Jericho. People are coming up to Jerusalem. He's coming to bring peace. And uh, um, the, everybody's heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And uh, they, they have to come up at least four days prior, though. And the reason they have to come up four days prior is because that was what was dictated by God. Because you would select your Passover lamb on the 10th day of Nisan, 
and then you would sacrifice that lamb on the 14th day of Nisan. And that was in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. I'm not going to read it. You can read it later. I was going to read it, but for time's sake, I'm not going to. But they, they, they had to follow the law. Exactly. So they needed to be there on the 10th day to, to get their lamb. To, to, and then they would take that lamb. And they'd bring that lamb into their house for four days. And then they would sacrifice that lamb. What's the picture of that? The picture is that here's my offering to you. I'm going to connect with that, with that animal for a period of four days. Could you imagine, you know, your puppy, you're like, oh, come here. You know, and you have him for four days, and then you go take him to the temple, and they sacrifice him. And by the way, you slit the throat. It's a, it's a vivid picture. And, and, and God wants his people to understand, particularly these people, what the cost of sin is. He wants us to understand that sin produces death. He wants us to understand, and he wants them to see the vividness that the blood is what covers them. And so it's interesting that, you know, this particular day happens to be the 10th day of Nisan, where Jesus would ride in Jerusalem. Where do we get that? It's from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. You've probably heard of the 70-week prophecy of Daniel. Daniel was praying to God, and he was a praying man. And if you want to hear from God, you pray, and God will speak. But Daniel was a praying man, and, 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 he, and he offered himself up to the Lord. And he said, Lord, show me some things, man. Use me. And God gave him a picture of what was going to happen, when the Messiah would come, how, how, how it would all happen. He gave him not only a picture, but he gave him a timeline. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, we see the entirety of God's plan from the coming of the Messiah to the, the desolation of the Antichrist in uh, the, the tribulation period. It's that big of a time frame. And so God tells Daniel there are 70 weeks. It starts with, with, with seven sevens. Or a week in, in this particular case represents seven years, right? So a week, one week represents seven years. So the first week is seven times seven, which is 49 years. Plus, as we read in Daniel, put Daniel to, yeah. So here's what it says. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put to the end sin, and to atone for the iniquity, to bring in the everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to the, restore, or to the restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, 49 years. Okay? Then... For 60, oh, back up. For 62 weeks, that's 7 times 62, which I think is 434. It shall be 434 years. It shall be built again with the squares in the moat. So you have a period of 69 weeks there. That's 483 years. That is 173,880 days. Why are you telling us this? Because 
from the point in which the decree was made to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, there shall be 69 weeks and then he'll be cut off. What am I saying? There will be, from the point in which that decree was made, 173,880 days utilizing a 360-day Jewish calendar. You can mark them off on your calendar and the Messiah will come and be cut off. The Messiah will come on that day, and then he'll be cut off. So what I'm telling you is that this particular prophecy speaks to the very day that Jesus would ride into the, to, the, uh, to Jerusalem on that donkey. Now, you, you're looking at me like, I have no idea what you just said. Look it up and research it. It is incredible. God gave them, pinpointed the day. When Jesus would come on a donkey in Jerusalem, why did he do that? Not only did he give him the day, he told him what it would look like in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He said, on this day, and here's how it's going to look, and what happened? They missed it. Many of them missed it. Why? Sometimes we don't take God's word as seriously as we should. Sometimes we take God's word and we make it say what we want it to say rather than what it says. There's a hundred different reasons why. But here's what I want to tell you. It wasn't for a lack of God giving them the information, right? He gave them exactly the day in which Jesus would come, the 10th of Nis Nisan, and he told them exactly how they would do it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, on the back of a colt, on a foal of the donkey. And here's Jesus coming in to Jerusalem as the fulfillment of this. Now, he will spend four days there just like the Passover lamb would with the family, living amongst the people, touching the people. And when it's time, he will give himself up and he will become the Passover lamb. He is not coming as as, as the Lion of Judah. He is coming as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Listen, God has given us all the information. The question is, are we taking it seriously? You know, the Bible continues to go on and say that Jesus is coming back. And it gives us specific signs that we can look for. I don't know if you're looking around, but you might want to take a look at Matthew chapter 24. You might want to take a look at, um, you know, first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and read about the signs of the times in the last days, what it will look like. And tell me if you're not seeing these things. What I'm telling you is God has given us the information. Time is short. Time is short. He's going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. And we, we don't have to worry about, you know, how that all looks. We just trust him and, and believe his word. That's why we have to be students of the word, folks. We need to know the Bible because God is, it's our, it's our life plan. God has given it to us so that we can know. Listen, some of you don't like to operate in the dark. And yet, when it comes to these matters, you operate in the dark. You're like, oh, I'm not going to worry about that. Listen, God's given you this so that you can know. He gave Daniel the prophecy, not for Daniel, for us. He, he gave, he gave or for, for those that would be looking to the Messiah, he, he, he gave the prophecy of Zechariah for these people in Jerusalem. He's given you his word. He's given you these prophecies. Many people in, in that culture knew 
of this prophecy, what happened? Well, his disciples, because they're full of real praise, begin to bring real offering. They start to lay down their import, the things that are important to them, and they give them to Jesus. Not only does that, that creates a cascade of people that begin to do the same thing. Not all of them are real worshipers. Some of them are fans, right? And so the fans see the, the praisers, and they go, oh, well, hey, they're singing. I should sing too. So they start to lay down their their, their cloaks, and then, you know, in other, the other gospel accounts, they start to cut down palm branches and lay them down. Why a palm branch? Because it's a sign of victory. Because it's a sign of victory. So they start to submit to him as their king and proclaim victory, and yet he's not coming for war, he's coming for peace. His disciples were even in the camp of saying, oh, Jesus is now going to set up his earthly kingdom and remember, they would fight about who was going to be on his right and his left. Man, they didn't get it either. That's why I said true praisers may not have their theology all worked out. I promise you I don't, and you probably don't either. Try my best to understand the Scripture. But maybe there's some things I don't quite understand yet, and the Lord will continue to show me. What? He doesn't know everything? I don't. And what I know I believe but God has changed my theology a couple times. Maybe he's done that to you. Listen, it's not, not so much that we're 100% accurate. It's that we are 100% flexible in what the Holy Spirit wants to show us. Amen? Amen. So, so here's the thing is, these guys begin to praise. They start to quote uh, Psalm 118, 26, when they begin to, to proclaim the, the, their, their praise to God and they they began to sing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, it's interesting, the phraseology in that. Notice where the peace is. It's not on earth. It's peace in heaven. It's peace in heaven. Jesus came to make peace in heaven for you. He came to give himself up as the Lamb of God to make peace in heaven for you and I. Well, who's in heaven? God is. And, he and we're at war with him until we accept what Christ has done for us. And he becomes our Lord and Savior. And then we're at peace with him. That's what he goes on to say here in verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near... And saw the city, he wept over it, saying, uh, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's come to make peace for you. Now here's, here's what's going to happen. is people are going to challenge that. And this was no different. When the Pharisees, who are the, the, the uh, fault finders in the crowd, they see all these people beginning to sing and praise, praise Jesus. They understand the messianic promise. They know what he's doing, and they say to them, hey, you better, you, better you better kill this crowd right now. You better calm this praise because this is proclamation that you're the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. No, he says. You know what he says? If I silence them, the rocks beneath your feet will cry out. Now, why does he say that? Because this was an ordained 
moment by God. He will get praise, people. He will get praise. He will get praise. And it doesn't have to come from us, but he will get praise. He will get praise and he deserves it. Not a moment did Jesus say, hold on a second. I'm not your Messiah. He continued down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem on the donkey, proclaiming to Jerusalem and everybody else around him that he is the king of Israel and that he's come to make peace. And that's why they're giving offering to him, because he's the king. You see in different places where people begin to bow down to angels, and what do they do? Very quickly, they say, whoa, 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 get up. Don't bow down to me. You bow down to God alone. Jesus is accepting the praise of people because he is God in the flesh. And he has come to make peace for us. Uh, he, he goes on in verse uh, 40, 43, 42, the last part of it. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. He's telling these people in Jerusalem that, that his coming is hidden from them. Why? Let's go on. For these days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will leave you uh, leave one stone upon uh, another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation why why is Jesus telling them that it's hidden from them now he just told us in verse 44 because they did not know the time of his visitation of their visitation their visitation. It was their promise. He's their Messiah. And they've missed it. Why? Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. They are drawing near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. They are, they are stuck in a religious routine that makes no room for God. That says you have their, their traditions are higher than the scripture themselves. The, the way that they do worship is more important to them than the one they're worshiping. That can happen to us. We can get into that saying, oh man, worship was not good today. That message was really off. And you think like, wait, wait a second. Did we give praise to God? I didn't like the songs. Oh, it's about you now. I forgot. I forgot. It's not about worshiping Jesus. It's about you. But, but yeah, the songs weren't the way I liked them. And, and the message, you know, I, I've heard that story over and over again. You know, I mean, I was thinking that maybe they'd get a little deeper. Oh, is the Holy Spirit not here? Is he not speaking? Can he not take you deeper in your understanding of Scripture? What, what I'm saying is we can slip into this mode of worship where where we have expectations that aren't met because it's all about us. And that's the way this religious system was. It was all about man. All centered on man. And I would venture to say that there are lots of different places in our culture, in our world today, where the service is all about man. You know, I, I, I love that last song that we sang, Nothing Else, because that is what we are here for. Nothing else. Jesus doesn't owe you a thing, folks. Doesn't owe you a single thing. And yet we come to give to him. And as a result, we are blessed. But we're not coming for the blessing. We're coming because he's worthy. We're coming because we want to sit at his feet.
because he deserves our worship and our praise because he is our king and because he came to make peace for you. That was his purpose. He desired, you can see the heart of God in verses 41 through 44 where Jesus begins to weep over Jerusalem. He's weeping over these hard-hearted people that are completely missing what the Scripture had dictated for them to look for in their coming Messiah. And he's weeping. And he's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, had you just humbled yourself, I would have taken you up like a chick gathers her hens, but you were not willing. That's not in this account, but it's in another are you willing this morning? Are you willing? Are you just singing or are you praising? Are you coming to him with everything that you have and you say, Lord, here I am as your drink offering. I pour myself out to you because you are worthy of my worship. Are you just singing songs to see what you can get this morning? But you're following the other people and you're laying your cloak down. He wants it for real. He wants it for real. He doesn't want fake worship. He doesn't need to get it because even the rocks in the ground will cry out if we don't praise him. He doesn't need our praise, but he wants it. Why does he want it? Because he knows if you really praise him, it will move you into a place of really being in relationship with him. It will move you out of a religious mindset and into a relational mindset. It'll move you into a acts of service because you love Jesus, not because you think you're uh, making your way to heaven because of it. He wants real praise because it produces, you know, that Christ-likeness in us. It will produce obedience to his word. You'll be obedient. It will produce offering to him. Listen, you won't give because you have to give. You'll give because you get to give. Your time, talents, all these things, you will give to him because, as it were, he gave everything for you. You won't be saying, why do I have to give him 10%? Guess what? You don't. You don't have to give him a single thing. But the mandate of giving in the New Testament is that you would give with a cheerful heart, whatever you've decided. You see, God took the law away, in a sense, by bringing Jesus, and he said, you're not going to make your way to me that way. It's only through Christ. It's by grace through faith that you're saved. And so when you give, you give as a, as a mandate, yes, but you give as a cheerful giver, no matter what it is, your time, your talents, your finances. You give to him because he's worthy, not because you have to. Not only will real praise produce real obedience and produce real offering, but it will produce real peace. Are you lacking this morning? Are you, do you have peace with the Father? He didn't come to bring peace on earth. Your life will never be, you know, as it were physically, you're never going to be in a perfect place of peace on this earth. You're going to have trial after trial after trial. But here's the thing. In the trial is the peace. What he's saying is I'm not going to make your life easy and you're going to coast. It's going to be hard. He said it would be hard, but he said he would give you peace in the midst of it because he came to, to bring peace to you, you know, to, to make peace in heaven for you. And so God has the ability to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
no matter what you're going through. So now the question becomes, who am I? Who am I in the story? Am I the person praising him? Am I the person singing? Or am I the person who is the, the, the fault-finding religious person? That's for you to determine. But here's what I want you to know. God has given you some information to, to act on this morning, just like he gave them. And he wants you to act on it. Time is short, folks. And, and reality is he's coming soon. And, you, you know, he wants you to understand that only real praisers are going to go to heaven. Only those who are sold out to Jesus, only those who are abiding in him, only those who have crowned him the king of their life will make it. Do you know there was a, there was, why was Jesus weeping over Jerusalem? Because there was a city full of people who thought they were going to heaven, but Jesus knew they were going to hell. Wait a second, they were Jews. Exactly. Jews had to come the same way. If there was no looking for the Messiah, if their, if their hope was in the law, if their hope was in, in them being able to live, out, live the law perfectly, they were not saved. These are God's chosen people. And God is still choosing people today. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And what an incredible, incredible passage we have before us, Lord. And uh, we just, we would want to come before you. We ask you this morning, Lord, to, to convince us in our own hearts who we are in this story. That, you know, are we just singing songs? Are we truly praising you? Are we religious people who have no relationship with you? Father, you know. And we ask you to reveal it to us. We know that you came to bring peace. We know that you came, Lord, to set the captive free. We know that you came to bring salvation to any and all who would call upon your name. And so as we continue to pray with every head bowed and eye closed, if you're here this morning and you don't know if you're going to heaven, God wants to give you an opportunity right now. Maybe you've said a prayer before and you, you didn't give him your whole heart. He wants a sincere offering this morning of everything that you are to him. All your baggage, <laughs> everything that you are, he wants you to just give to him and you de declare him Lord over everything. He says, we continue to pray. And, I, and if that's you this morning, just lift your hand up. I want to pray a prayer with you. Is anyone here this morning that's saying, hey, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure. I want to make sure that I am going to heaven. This is not a game, folks. And this is not a routine thing. If you're not in Christ, God wants to bring you into that place. God bless you. Is there anybody else? Anyone else? God bless you. You want to make sure that you know. God bless you. I see you over there. Anyone else here this morning that wants to be in a relationship? God bless you. Listen, eternity is at stake. God wants you, God wants you to be in heaven with him. Anyone else? I ask you one more time. This is not a plea. Well, it is, but I'm not trying to move emotionally. We're trying to ask you if you want to declare Christ your king. God bless you. Anybody else? For those of you who lifted your hand, I want you just to say in your heart, with, with, with all your heart, just pray this prayer with me. There is no magic in the words. 
But the reality is, is it's the sincerity of the heart that God is looking at. And you cannot confess him as Lord if he has not drawn you. And so we're trusting this morning that the Lord has drawn you to a place of full surrender to him. And so would you just say this in, quietly in your own heart, Lord Jesus, I come to you right now and I ask you to come into my life to be my Lord and my Savior. I need the peace that you came to give and I receive it now. I turn away from my sin and I turn to you. Help me to live my life for you now, Jesus. Help me to grow in you so that I can become the person that you are calling me to be. Thank you for causing me to be born again this morning. In Jesus' name. And for the rest of us here today, Lord, maybe we didn't have the courage, but God, you know, and if there was anyone else here or on the radio or God hears you, and he knows. But here, here's the one thing that you need to know is that the evidence of your salvation is found in a changed life. The, pray that you, the prayer that you just prayed was a declaration and if you truly have received him, then your life will change. And so we thank you for the life change, Lord. And we ask you to fill the rest of us with your spirit Lord, put people in our path that we can declare just an incredible who you are, Lord, and all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.